This is a presentation of the Pitch Podcast Network. Hello, 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 and welcome to Streetwise, the podcast extension of the Pitch from Kansas City. I am your host and the editor-in-chief of The Pitch, Brock Wilbur. How is everybody doing? Super Bowl time. Super Bowl time? Anything else to talk about? Nope, just Super Bowl time. I think we can all agree on that. Uh, Very excited to see this year. Uh, One of the things we got to publish this week was a survey that shows that uh, a solid uh, like four-fifths of the country is uh, cheering for the Chiefs, uh, or at least against Tom Brady, uh, whatever that may be. Uh, So excited to see how that turns out. Uh, it, it feels good to have the full momentum of America behind us to have, uh, you know, people have been talking a lot about unity these days. If we can unify behind Patrick Mahomes being a better, more interesting and deserving winner than Tom goddamn Brady, I think we're on the right path for humanity in general, for, for us, for us as a people. Uh, very excited to see where that goes. Um, quick episode this week, a couple of really fun things. Uh, we have Nick's Music Corner as always. I've got an interview with a guy who wrote a whole book about ska. Um, so if you're a skanker from back in the day, uh, this is this is for you. Uh, and if you have no interest in ska or find it very funny, uh, this is also, uh, this is probably for you. This is, uh, this is a really good one. Um, but, uh, first up, we have a reading of our cover story from the February issue of the pitch. Uh, the story is South of Peculiar by Gail Folsom and is read by our friend Jason from Stolen Dress Entertainment. Jason, take it away. South of Peculiar, rural Missouri's artisan boom is feeding into KC by Gail Folsom. On a December evening in 2017, I was standing in the crowded tasting room of a small, fashionable winery I worked for in Sonoma County, California, holding a glass of Syrah, showing co-workers a picture on my phone of the house I had just bought in Missouri. After ooing and eyeing over the size of the house and the amount of land around it and utter impossibility in California's housing market, one of my work friends asked, So are you going to start a bakery? Fast forward three years. My husband Scott is finishing up the rewiring on a three-deck professional pizza oven, capable of baking over 60 loaves of bread in one go. The oven is a 50-year-old beast of pure dial-spinning electrical heat, and one that I did not have a choice but to invest in if I wanted to meet demand. I needed this. I wanted it too, but still. Until March 2018, I'd lived in the San Francisco Bay Area my whole life. I had been making sourdough bread for a couple of years, and I'd been creating starters in the cellar of this winery all that fall as the harvest had been coming in. The same yeasts that ferment grapes into wine make bread rise, so wine and bread are natural cornerstones of cultivation. The bread experiments of that year I'd brought to the winery staff, and some had assumed that I'd been planning to switch careers. In fact, I'd been planning nothing of the sort. Starting a bakery in California was out of the question. I have two children, and at the time a mortgage and other debts, and the financial toll of starting a bakery in a place so crowded by restaurants, with sky-high overhead and impossible real estate prices, would have been a gamble with the futures of my family that I was never going to take. Restrictions in the Golden State are so numerous that to even start a business in California, expect 30% of costs to go to permits. Starting a cottage bakery didn't seem likely either, 
Our little house wouldn't accommodate the bread-making process, and both of us were working full-time and overtime to be able to afford our house and the child care we needed to afford to work full-time. We were caught in an endless loop of expenses and work. We knew we needed more space and less stress, and in an odd twist of fate, the big house south of Peculiar, Missouri, was the solution. Scott and I began the process of pulling up stakes, without jobs or family to move to, without having actually set foot inside the strange house we'd just bought in a town of 482 people, just knowing we needed to change. Four months after we set foot in our new house, I showed up in Lewisburg, Kansas to vend for the first time ever at a local farmer's market with my newly branded home bakery, Au Contraire. The market runs 7 to 11 a.m., Saturdays from June through September. That seemed like a great testing ground for my wild notion that I could make it as a professional baker. The strong support and community of fellow vendors I found there fueled my excitement and drew me further down the rabbit hole of the cottage industry. We all saw the market grow between 2018 and 2019, and interest seemed on the rise. 2020's market took me completely by surprise. Prior to opening June 1st, Lewisburg's Farmer's Market held a meeting of vendors to discuss COVID-19 precautions. Social distancing, including a caution tape barrier, masks, hand sanitizer, name tags, etc., were all put into practice from day one. I wasn't sure how many people would want to attend a market during a pandemic, and because I wouldn't be able to give out samples, I baked somewhat less than my usual amount, about 30 loaves of sourdough and two dozen pastries. I sold out in under an hour. The next weekend, I upped my amounts to 40 loaves of bread and four dozen pastries. Again, I sold out in less than an hour. I began taking reservations for my regular customers to ensure I didn't sell out before they could get there. By the end of the market season, I was baking 50 loaves of bread and five dozen pastries and still selling out almost every week. The food movement is here, says Ileana Price of Five Mile Farms. I think it's still young, but the ball is rolling. Ileana and Lucas raised beef and chicken with their three children. They started their farm with some chickens for the kids and began to raise a small herd of cattle a few years later. Like me, they saw an enormous surge in interest during the summer of 2020, and luckily, they were in the process of moving their family farm to a larger acreage. The biodiverse farming practice that the prices use is regenerative. It is designed to produce high-quality meat while actively improving the land. The increase in demand saw them butchering more than three times the number of cattle they had butchered in 2019, and they plan to triple their number of meat birds as well. Everyone had time to reflect and think about things they hadn't thought about before, Ileana Price says. Food matters. Food source matters. Some of Five Mile Farm's customers found them because of food shortages at grocery stores and began a loyal relationship with a provider they could develop a face-to-face -face relationship with. Pixie Hearn moved to Missouri within months of us and started Pixie Chicks Farm in Freeman, a poultry farm where she raises turkeys and chickens for meat and eggs. Like many, she lost her regular job early in the pandemic. What I had seen as growing slowly from a hobby to a business has definitely accelerated, she says. I doubled my laying hens and quadrupled my turkeys. A lot of people are interested in avoiding the standard food distribution chain, Price adds. It's been proven to be more easily disrupted than people imagined. When grocery stores started running out of eggs, Pixie was there to provide locally grown, free-range chicken and turkey eggs. Many of those customers became meat chicken and turkey customers later. The last 10 years have seen a steep rise in home cooking trends. So it makes sense that people are interested in quality ingredients in a year when they had to cook for themselves whether they wanted to or not. This is as good a place as any to say that the irony of growing a sourdough bakery in 2020 is not lost in me. 
At the moment when it seemed like everyone in the country developed an overnight obsession with becoming a bread-baking, beer-brewing, medieval innkeeper, I was five years ahead of schedule. As it turns out, however, sourdough bread-baking has a long, steep learning curve, and rather than seeing the new national pastime hurt my business, I instead got requests for sourdough bread-making classes, a new area to branch into in the coming year, hopefully. Much of the food movement in the rural KC area is focused on farming and the production of meat, eggs, produce, and dairy ingredients. Eric and April Castle own Castle Farms in Pleasanton, Kansas, where they raise hogs. Eric raised pigs for 4-H when he was a child, and now he breeds show pigs for 4-H projects, which start in January. Rather than selling off the breeding sows to someone who could use them for meat, they decided to cut out the middleman and begin producing bratwursts, bacon, and more. Brats are our number one selling item, he says. Prior to COVID-19, we were selling 10 to 20 hogs a year. This year, we're over 100. Some customers have already reserved their orders for October of 2021. The choices producers now face are the tipping point of any small business. Do we expand our markets? Should we make this a full-time job? Social media has been a game-changer for cottage producers. There's so much good that can come from it, Ileana Price says. I tell her that 90% of my bread-making education has come from other bakers on Instagram, and she laughs. We're going to the University of YouTube. Social awareness of food sourcing and growing practices is definitely driving interest in small producers. In April, the Castles were invited by a friend, Rick McNary, to advertise on his new Facebook page, Shop Kansas. Within a month, Shop Kansas had over 140,000 followers, and the Castles got so many orders that by midsummer they had to stop advertising for the rest of the year. The Castles invested in an ordering website to cope with the volume of orders they were receiving. I was also maxing out my bread-making capability as the holidays hit. The Thanksgiving menu sold out in 36 hours. Part of that decision to limit visibility was of necessity. While I could probably have doubled my orders for Christmas, I would not have been able to fulfill them without more equipment. When one of the three ovens we have in our home broke in the middle of the 12-hour straight Thanksgiving bake, I stomped upstairs and announced to my husband Scott that I'd had it. I was buying a commercial oven. I bought a speed rack at auction, a tall rack that holds 20 26 by 18 inch pans to help me get dough shaped into loaves faster, and closed my eyes and hit buy now on an auction for a 6 by 6 by 6 foot used electric oven. The opinion of every vendor and organizer I spoke with is that the cottage food boom of 2020 is likely to continue into the next year and beyond. Michael Hersey, owner of Casa Somerset Bed and Breakfast in Paola, Kansas, has been an educational organizer and vocal advocate for local producers for more than 20 years. Recently, he participated in a Zoom conference with over 2,500 organic farmers and food equality activists across the country. They say we're growing. By 2025, it's going to be a lot bigger. I think a lot of things are going to go our way, Hersey says. The decision to expand market opportunities into larger, more urban farmers' markets is now in front of many cottage producers. Expansion means change, though. Pixie Hearn made the choice to process all her meat birds herself rather than taking them to a plant. I'm picky about how those chickens are going to be dispatched. I make sure that they're as unstressed as possible. That's really important to me, and also that there's no waste. She knows that she will not be able to sell her birds at market without going through a licensed processing facility, so her marketing efforts remain focused on selling directly from her farm. To keep quality high requires time and resources, and knowing your limits. Eric and April Castle have considered joining larger urban markets, but know they would have to hire help to run a larger booth. I want to continue to grow, says April, but I know we'd have to change some of the things that we do. One of us would have to quit our job. If we can afford to hire someone to work for us, we should be able to afford to quit our jobs. 
They also worry about abandoning the rural customers they've developed relationships with for downtown areas. Lewisburg has been a sweet spot, April tells me. It is a good market that's good-sized, and I feel like everybody there has become family. Slow growth considerations may make rural producers hesitant to expand into urban markets, but that doesn't seem to stop customers from heading out from the downtown area to rural KC for their weekend pantry shopping, though. Tim and Kathy Sullivan, who own Sullivan's Greenhouse in Cleveland, Missouri, have been vending at the Overland Park Market for over 20 years, but chose to sit it out in 2020. Their garden pantry brand of organic herbs and vegetables is sold in small garden centers throughout the KC area and are some of the best quality plants I've ever grown. I buy directly from their property in Cleveland, where they are open only one day a week in the growing season. Although only a small percentage of their revenue comes from visitors to their Cleveland property, they keep the greenhouse open to visitors who heard about them through word of mouth. I'd say about half the people who come here come from the city, Tim says, and we don't advertise at all. I see my fair share of customers from the downtown area as well, including one woman who drove from north of the airport to pick up bread five times in the last four months. But there may be no better indication of urban interest in locally produced food than the Miami County Farm Tour. This fall I sold bread at Casa Somerset. I made 100 loaves for the first day and sold out within an hour, and many of the visitors I chatted with came from the metro areas. Every vendor and farmer I talked to said they had record years, Mike Hersey tells me. I think it's going to get bigger and better. One of the reasons for the uptick in agro-tourism may have had to do with the fact that people were drawn to outdoor activities as COVID cases in the metro areas continued to rise. A day spent touring a farm or visiting a market looked like a healthy alternative to staying shut up inside or risking a crowded grocery store. Small market vendors saw an increase in regular customers and were able to rely on steady income and much-needed social interaction. Building that relationship with the weekly customer I didn't know I needed that in my life, Ileana says. It just takes it to another level. We took care of the animal, and when somebody buys it and really spends time on a recipe, what an honor. Community is a big part of the rural cottage industry. Producers purchase from each other to make products they in turn sell. For my chili bread, I use chilies and garlic grown by Foxfire Farm in Lewisburg. I use blackberries from Cy and D's Blackberry Farm for my puff pastry turnovers. This year, I finally realized the dream of a local source of quality flour when Ileana told me about City Farmer Foods, a fourth-generation farm in central Kansas, vending flour at the Overland Park Farmer's Market. When Danny and Rafaela Leslie moved to Kansas in 2019 with their two daughters, they had a dream of creating community. One year later, that dream took the form of Cowboy Coffee Post, their artisan coffee business. Coffee shops have such a special place in my heart, Danny says. As a family, we spend our quality time at coffee shops. The girls ask, can we take a coloring book? And we'll sit there for two hours and just spend time as a family. In 2020, gathering in coffee shops was off the table, but with exceptional timing, the Leslies had purchased a trailer in February that they converted into a coffee truck. They began to work with Anthony and Priyanka Taylor of Brew and Brews Co., a local coffee roaster who I know from their time vending at the Lewisburg Farmer's Market. Together, they created an ethically sourced, rich, dark house blend they call Black Bison, when Raffaella was diagnosed with a rare form of cancer in August, the coffee truck activities were scaled back, but with a product and marketing in place, they were able to build an online business selling their coffee. The support they have received for Raffaella and for their business plan affected Danny deeply. Going forward, their plan is to create an organization that sponsors small businesses like theirs with gifts of equipment or upgrades to their operations. I think if you do things for the right reasons, it will click. For us, we didn't do this for a quick buck. Creating community for people, that experience, to have time together, that's what it's all about, Danny says. Good food has a way of bringing people together, 
It's a source of enormous happiness to me that in this year of fear and doubt, I have made breads and pastries so enjoyed by customers that they will drive 50 miles to get a couple loaves of rosemary garlic sourdough, or pick up huge orders of galettes and turnovers to deliver to their housebound friends and relatives, or show up unfailingly at 8 a.m. every Saturday to get the cinnamon raisin sourdough their granddaughter loves. That sense of community makes me want to be better at what I do, and make it my focus, not just my hobby. The Oven, christened Marianne after the tireless steam shovel in the children's book Mike Mulligan and His Steam Shovel, needs a wiring fix for a short on the bottom deck, which I explosively caused by opening the control panel without turning it off. Two of the deck lights need replacing, but the massive stones inside are intact. The short will be fixed soon, and the two working decks heat to 450 degrees in minutes. Like many slow-growth cottage producers, I'm extremely careful with my business expenses, Moving to Missouri took us out of debt, and I'm in no hurry to jump back in. The opportunity to repurpose the retired, antique pizza oven with 40 years under its hood at the Wisconsin Pizzeria it came from appeals to me from a no-waste perspective. It's still a big investment for me to make, especially during a time of unemployment, but the return on it might change my life if I can become a full-time home baker. The future looks bright for the cottage industry. If there's any good coming out the other side of 2020, I hope this is on the list. And now, ladies and gentlemen, it is time for Nick's Music Corner. Nick? Hello, I'm Nick Spacek, music editor for The Pitch, here with this week's local music recommendation. Musician Ian Teeple has made a name for himself playing in bands like Warm Bodies, The Fog, and his own The Natural Man Band. But the debut full-length from his Silicon Prairie project, My Life on the Silicon Prairie, takes elements of all of those and ramps things up. Self-described as a trebly and jittery, landlocked, midwestern punk sound, not dissimilar from early Devo or Dow Jones and the Industrials, it's an art-damaged, high-pitched blast of 13 tracks, all recorded by Teeple. My Life on the Silicon Prairie is out this Friday, February 5th, via Computer Human Records, and you can order it at siliconeprairie.bandcamp.com. I spoke with Teeple by phone about the album, its visual accompaniment, and more, and you can find that interview at the Pitch's website, wherein we discuss at length the amazing video for this equally intense song, America.
So Aaron Carnes is a friend of mine. Uh, he is a music journalist, music writer, uh, and, uh, you know, longtime ska fan. Uh, he has written a book that is coming out called In Defense of Ska. Uh, it's in pre-order right now. I got to read uh, an early version of it. And look, mentioning ska is basically a punchline uh, amongst everyone, including people that came up loving ska. Uh, the, the style of music that is punk uh, with a heavy dose of uh, reggae and horns in there. Uh, sometimes it, it trends more goofy and sometimes it, it tries to be serious, but sometimes that seriousness is undercut by uh, poppy songs uh, with lots of horns. Yeah, it's a it's a difficult genre to master. Anyway, uh, Aaron has, has written a book that um, tries very seriously to put ska in a historical context and to write about it seriously, uh, while also taking the piss out of himself and uh, everyone else that uh, that truly likes it, but also being supportive and, and cool about it. Uh, so I don't know. It's a, a fascinating look at a whole genre of music that uh, often gets dismissed as a punchline uh, and as somebody that still uh, genuinely and occasionally regrettably still loves ska. Uh, this was a delight of an interview. So uh, here we go. This is my conversation with Aaron. Aaron, welcome to the show. Would you introduce yourself to the audience? Yes, my name is uh, Aaron Carnes. I am a music journalist and an author of the book called In Defense of Ska. And I guess you can also add that I'm a huge Ska fan, obviously. Does the book look anything like this? (laughs) I'm raising it into the video. This is a podcast and an audio medium. It's totally fine. I I adore that you wrote a book about Ska, uh, mostly because it means that I get to ask the question, why do you write a book about Ska? (laughs) Well, somebody's got to do it, right? You, literally, I, I was looking to be like, how many other people have sincerely tackled it? Uh, because like, even mentioning like, I'm talking to a guy today that wrote a full book about ska. The word ska is already funny, even in reference. <laughs> like people just laugh thinking about a genre of music, which is unfair and weird. Like it is, I've spent enough time in emo world to know that like people writing books about that, like really fucking hate the way that that's portrayed. Like, no, it's not all about like cutting yourself and a girl hating you. Like it is a a very evolved form. Like I I, I was prepared for this one uh, in terms of like some of the people that I've talked to in the past in that world being like, I have no patience for jokes. And I know that you are a very funny guy. So like, it wasn't going to be that, but like I was looking to see how many people had sincerely tackled an entire genre of music in, in book form. And there are not a lot of results for that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. No, the Heather Augustine is an author that she's written several books on ska, but she um, tends to focus on Jamaica and some two-tone stuff and touches into post-two-tone stuff. Um, most people, and, and in England, there's lots of stuff written about two-tone because two-tone was pop music there. It was very popular and it's actually very respected in England. But right. In this country, ska is not viewed through the lens of a respectable music that deserves like actual critical analysis and, you know, a journalist like digging in to tell the story. It's, you know, even if even for people who like it, a lot of people feel like, oh, it's just silly music. And, you know, what what is there to even dig in on? 
past that, you know, from a journalist point of view? It, you, it, I am in the Venn diagram of people for ska, like, yes, I'm a diehard ska fan, but also like, I felt myself called out a number of times in this book where you're like, it isn't as silly as people think. And I'm like, but it also is. But also like, I, you know, you, you wrote about it at points where you're like, that you you speak at length about the band Real Big Fish, which uh, I can we could do a whole podcast just about them. But like, yes, uh, that band has tackled some very serious, very tar- dark subjects, and like it's incredible to juxtapose that with like the happiest sounding horn music in the world, and that's always mm-hmm. been like the joy and conceit of it. So when people see them as just like that's the cartoon version of what music could be. Uh, there is something genuinely distressing about that in terms of like writing off an entire genre. Like I feel like even Zydeco music, which is not that far disconnected from this, has a better Americana appreciation to it that like, well, that's a genuine music, even though like it is, it is not that far disconnected from this, like that, those can be songs, whereas ska music is only ska music in like a vacuum. Yeah. Um, so I find myself... Do, yeah. <laughs> As I say, I find myself also kind of living in a in these contradictions, trying to write this book and make an argument for ska. And that, like you say, ska isn't only silly music. Like I feel like people over over stereotype it, but that is a facet of ska music. And I'm I don't want to make it seem like there's something wrong with silly music because I do want to defend like silly music is worthwhile music. However. Scott isn't solely silly music. You know, it also deserves to be seen for being political music and being serious music and being personal music. So I kind of try to hold all of those ideas in the book at the same time. Like, hey, you know, people who write, people, nerdy kids who write silly music, that's totally awesome. But so is all this other stuff that doesn't get as much attention for under the Scott label. And it makes sense on its face because Scott music is a band with horns, up tempo, everything in general, sort of like the the vibe is mostly happy, and so it's it is. If you are to introduce somebody to a song, like the general vibe is one of like positivity, and it is hard to not dissociate positivity from heavy subject matter or importance. And so that yeah. that's one of those things. It it is very much as as aforementioned with like the cartoonish aspect. Like there can be like. Bojack Horseman is a very serious cartoon. Yes, it is animated, but like to look at it and be like, well, that's a cartoon is to dismiss like any any layers of like importance that there may be there or like yeah. heavier themes. And I feel like Ska can wind up in that same place where you're like, no one with horns and a guy that's whole job is to dance on stage could ever talk about a genuine human emotion besides <laughs> being drunk. Like it's, it's a difficult situation for an entire genre of music to be forced into that corner. Yes, exactly. Also, I mean, I'm also, I feel like I'm in this weird place too, where ska, part of the reason why ska's viewed this way is because it, it went to this really high level mainstream place. Like, I don't feel like it was quite viewed in the same way, like even in say like 94 or 95 before it started catching on to the radio. Like, yes, I'm, of course, punk bands would see like these ska bands with horn sections and they probably make a few jokes, but they probably have a good time and they would still see the music for what it was. I think like becoming a mainstream genre, I think kind of stripped away a lot of the context around it. So on one hand, it was kind of shitty that ska music 
had that treatment to it. But on the other hand, like a lot of people first heard of ska music because it was on the radio and they would then learn more about it after. So like part of me wants to like really kind of talk down on the fact that ska got this mainstream treatment and kind of how it ruined ska. But the other hand, I know a lot of people who, who probably would have never gotten into ska and gotten into all kinds of interesting bands had they not first heard it that way. So it's a, it's a weird dilemma because it's, it's hard to kind of explain the problem and the good parts about ska getting that, that level of attention. It, you, you do, uh, you dedicate a, a really, a really serious amount of the book to the idea of, of selling out, which like, I feel like Sellout by Real Big Fish is one of the first like truly ska songs I ever heard growing up in terms mm -hmm. of like, I know what this genre is. And so they identified the issue of the genre from the start. And and you sort of get into the idea, like it, all of punk music definitely hinges on this idea that there is actual punk and then there is sellout punk. And anyone that finds any just any level of like success is automatically put into the second category. But there are there are bands here that have been doing what they've been doing for decades and never compromised what they are. And they can be thrown into these areas. And then of course, like the entire genre can be dismissed for like either you are somebody that is doing this for attention and then the attention window closes. And then there are certainly people that like abandon ska, like the sort of bands that like, okay, we, we are famous now, let's get rid of the horn section. Yeah. Uh, but like, and, and like, I, I feel like that that gets the same disparagement as like when, uh, when Creed had a platinum album under their, their <laughs> buckle. And then they were like, we're not a Christian rock. We never were. And you're like, you and Evanescence definitely were, and you used that to, to sell <laughs> a billion units. Like, you, yeah, we we aren't going to forget. Um, so, yeah, what what is what is the nature of selling out within this genre, and why does it have such an incredible presence uh, that I you just don't see elsewhere? Well, definitely, I can I can sympathize with ska bands that in in when you get to like nineteen ninety nine in two thousand suddenly the whole world turned on ska and just was like, this music sucks. Um, so, so I can understand. And, and, and even on the other end of it, like I, I, I hadn't really thought of it uh, until I was reading it in your uh, book, but like at, in, in the early parts of the nineties, people wouldn't touch most of these bands because record labels knew that horns were like a marketing, like death trap. No yeah. one wanted songs <laughs> with horns. Like we weren't in the eighties anymore. And it, it's one of those things that I remember the first, like, onion av club article that i ever read that like nailed me was like trying to list the best 20 songs that have horn solos in them or saxophone solos or something <laughs> and just like what a struggle it was for the staff to come up with and mm -hmm. and so to tie it into what you'd written i was like oh yeah at, at that point in the early 90s being like yeah this band has a whole horn section not only from a place of like no one wants to hear that but also from a place that i'd always thought of it from which was like how do you split the money between 10 people versus like a three piece, like local H those two guys can live on a record contract. Yeah. Tour yeah. Everybody. Uh, I, I don't know what happens when you need like a bus, the size of like a hockey teams. Uh, and then you go. So like, yeah, you, from, from even a fiscal perspective, it didn't make sense to get into. And then almost immediately the world turns on it. Yeah. I mean, in the nineties, the nineties with like the, the, how big labels were and the kind of profits people were making on CDs and how cheap gas was. Ska bands 
were making a living, oddly enough, like six, seven piece ska bands. It was an unusual time where even and, the ones and, that weren't on yeah. was like post 9-11, the reason that my touring career stopped like 2004, yeah. 2005, because I was like, oh, we booked a cross country tour and we just can't fucking afford it for this. Yeah. That gas is $3 <laughs> a gallon all of a sudden. I was like, okay, so that killed like a generation of MySpace musicians that thought sure. they could do better. <laughs> yeah, I remember, I remember my band touring in like 95 and we'd get to Texas and gas would be 99 cents. It was just, and I can't remember what it was in California where we live, but you know, that's, that's, that's crazy. Like we would actually make money. We were, we were a nobody band selling demo tapes and t-shirts and we wouldn't come home with a lot of money, but we would at least break even and have like a little bit of money to put in the band fund when we got home. And then we were I, six I do members. love how much of this book is pictures of you back in the day. <laughs> uh, you like it, it is, it is, it's wonderful that in the midst of stuff where you're like, I am taking this so seriously or as serious as I'm going to take it, there's a picture of you from decades ago, like in not even playing in a band, but like standing in front of the band, like air guitaring or something. It was just like, yes, that is the spirit of what we're doing. So yeah. I managed to nail it throughout. Yeah. I, I, I keep getting off of this. So you're back to like, why did the world turn on Scott? So... I think the re- the world the reason that the world turned on ska was because it elevated ska in a way that wasn't really true to the full picture of ska. So you know, before ska became a mainstream genre, it was a really diverse genre. Like you had, you did have the real big fish bands. I mean, real big fish started in like ninety one or ninety two. So you had bands like that already. You had bands that were really angry, really political, really serious. You had bands that were really true to like wearing suits and, and skinhead bands. You had this whole, like like this diversity of bands that were ska. And, and there, you didn't have like kids in checkered pants and fedoras at shows. I mean, that wasn't really the nature of it. It was a diverse group of kids that would go to the show. You know, and people from different styles would go to ska shows metalheads you know i, I, goth I do kids. remember the first time yeah. that a kid in middle school was like yeah you like ska you like that uh, why do they rock so hard by real big fish well you got to listen to the, the ska band op ivy and i was just <laughs> like this is awful this has nothing to do with what i think ska <laughs> is and years later i'm like okay i do love this and understand what it is but like yeah, as a seventh grader i was like these are not the same kind of band like yeah, yeah. You're, you're talking about the, this beautiful spectrum of what there was in a, in a genre of music that's nearly 100 years old, if we trace it back. <laughs> and so when it became really popularized, they, they made a very narrow version of what that was, not only by picking a few bands, but sort of like almost saying or implying like what these bands do, this is ska, you know if you wear plaid or you wear Hawaiian shirts, these things, these things were like very individual to the bands themselves, you know? Mighty Mighty Boston's chose plaid for whatever reason they chose plaid. Nothing to do with ska. Same with Real Big Fish and Hawaiian shirts. But, you know, that's what MTV does or did back in the 90s. It's like, this is ska. So if you kind of lean too heavy on that, all of a sudden it's like, it's, it's, and it's viewed as this trend. When ska wasn't a trend, it was a very vibrant underground scene. In, in this country, it was a very vibrant underground scene since the early, early 80s. So, but it's treating it like, oh, it's the latest thing. So of course the latest thing becomes yesterday's thing in no time. And so everything that they sort of identified as part of the genre, which was mostly the sillier aspects of it, suddenly became mortifyingly embarrassing. And all these people had no idea anything to do with what Scott really was 
And I don't mean like that it was from Jamaica and that it went to England. I mean, in this country, what ska was. I mean, ska was a healthy, vibrant scene in the 80s in the US. There were like bands packing clubs, you know, touring the country. They were doing really well. They just weren't getting record deals. And I, I think a big reason why a lot of these 80s ska bands couldn't catch a break is because the two-tone bands didn't take off here. So, you know, you had these, you had the specials, Madness, um, English Beat. These bands, the, the, their ska version of those bands didn't do well here. And the labels were like, well, you know, if the real deal <laughs> isn't going to blow up here, what is the American knockoff bands? What are they going to do here? So they kind of looked the other way when like bands like the Untouchables or Bim Scala Bim or even the Toasters and stuff back in the day, you know, it's just like, it didn't right. matter that these bands were doing super well. So it kind of, you, you cut to like 15 years later when punk is becoming popular and so there's like this whole subgenre of ska that's very much closely tied to the, the punk world and mm -hmm. the punk culture. So that, that seems a little bit easier to market. It makes a little better sense about who the audience is and stuff to, to the American record labels. And when you talk about the, the, the <laughs> this weird rise and immediate fall, I, uh, a detail in your book that I'd never known <laughs> uh, was that... Uh, Carson Daly's first show uh, <laughs> on MTV after he'd been lifted from doing radio work in, in LA to being like, well, let's put him on the air was a ska specific Saturday television program. And mm -hmm. I, I did not know that, but I, I do understand that if that had been my first interaction was to see his dumb goddamn painted fingernails and his very punchable face, I would have been like, <laughs> no, you know what? I'm, I'm not sure that this ska is for me. <laughs> yeah. It the Scotterday it's called Scotterday and uh, it it is a weird dichotomy because like the the segments of him with the like dancing Scott kids are so bad but they're pretty good music they had pretty good selection of songs you know they had uh, they had the new stuff they had specials they had Fishbone they actually had like a good selection of songs but the actual segments were so embarrassing and so just bad and just. God, you guys don't know anything about this genre, even though you're playing really good music. This actually sounds like a wonderful inverse of what he became on Total Request Live, where the music was terrible, but the, <laughs> the kids were hot. So the, the <laughs> cool teens and college people, like they, they seemed pretty and having a nice time. But uh, yeah, I, I do remember uh, like the first ever like weird troll bandwagon thing I ever got on like early in the internet was like, you could vote at Total Request Live for any song to be up for Total Request Live that day. And there was a write-in thing. And like a huge number of us in the Radiohead fan community decided to write in Radiohead's Just Music video. And it definitely got enough votes, but they definitely didn't air it that Wednesday. It was just like, ah, I'm going <laughs> to come back and get you someday. Like I'm going to game GameStop stock you uh, in 30 years and it's going to be fine. Um, so yeah, there are, uh, of course, four different waves of Scott that you love and appreciate, all four of them. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm clearly making you angry, and that's... <laughs> so yeah, yeah this, no, is, this is one of those things that like we're talking about a genre that it does have these distinct breakups. Would you define what they are and sort of this 
weird version of what four is at the end. I'll, I'll define uh, the four waves as people define them, and then I'll give you my opinion on the whole Fair thing. Fair enough. I'll take that. <laughs> okay, so ska started in the late 50s in, in Jamaica. Uh, you could say it started earlier depending on, you know, because it, it, it roots from from Mento music, which is traditional folk music of Jamaica, but then it kind of has these other elements that come in like uh, American R&B and, and jazz and, and them kind of flipping the beat around. But you say late 50s is when ska happens and it goes till about the early 60s when it, things started to switch over to rock steady and reggae. So that's wave one of ska. In, uh, in England, Ska music and uh, reggae music it continues to have a life in England because of the uh, Caribbean immigration to England. So these communities bring the music with them and they also bring the subculture there. So, but by the late seventies, roots reggae is what's popular in England, both with the immigrant community and with like sort of the punk rockers and the alternative like white kids of England. But some of them start digging up old ska records wanting to make a new music that's like mixed with the current punk and that's this becomes two-tone ska so that's the second wave now the third wave is depicted as what happened in the mid 90s and the fourth wave is is always argued in in ska forms as sometime after the 90s when ska has returned in subcapacity and whether that's happened or not is constantly being debated by ska kids um, and how can it happen when it's the same people? That's the tricky part. Yeah. So third wave. So part of my, I, I take some issue with third wave because I think third wave reinforces this idea that ska reemerged in the mid nineties, as opposed to sort of, so ska came to the U S immediately, you know, immediately after two-tone became a thing in England, the, the two-tone bands, had a cult audience here new bands formed in like 80 81 in the u.s so there was a ska scene almost immediately in the u.s and the third wave as it's defined is definitely an extension of that i mean there there would have never been a this this third wave boom had there not been all the groundwork laid out by all these bands because it wasn't just bands it was like uh record labels zines like touring right. network the in 95, the first we year almost we, like a class. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> in 95, when the first, when that's when you have um, date rape by sublime and uh, rancid's time bomb, those songs, and no doubt also those, those are um, mainstream sort of ska moments in 95, but you know, in 94, you know, ska is very, very healthy. There's all this energy and, and place for ska. So I don't think, I don't think those bands would have blown up had there not been the 15 years of a ska scene and, and all these people working behind the scenes, creating this healthy thing where all these bands were, you know, either making a living or, you know, be able to work part-time, you know, really being able to devote themselves full-time to their art, which is ska. And so the, the third wave suggests that, Oh, all of a sudden there's this ska revival. Oh, and it, and it went away like three years later. But then that's the other thing. It didn't really go away. That's, that's, the, that's the other argument against fourth wave. Yes, ska left the mainstream, but a lot of those bands continued on. A lot of fans continued loving the music, even though everyone made fun of it in the 2000s. Yeah, I you mean, mentioned the, how Real Big Fish still tours 10 months out of the year. Yeah. 30 think, years until, in, like, how can they have left? <laughs> COVID, before COVID, yeah, they were just touring nonstop. In, in like the mid-2000s, 
the band Mustard Plug, the, um, they start putting together the Ska's Dead tour. And part of the reason they did that is because everyone's like, Ska's dead, Ska's over, no one cares about Ska. But they were still touring and, and so were a bunch of other bands. And so they put together a package tour of all the current bands around and they played pretty big rooms. And they're like, they call it Ska's dead to be ironic, but also to show people Ska isn't dead, right? And then all these right. people were like, wow, I can't believe Ska is still around. I can't believe people are still going to Ska shows that they're playing big rooms. So this is the thing Scott has continued, especially post, you know, 90s, has continually fought against this idea, oh, it's dead, or is it coming back? But it's like, it's not really, it can't really come back if it didn't go away, you know? And, you know, there's a lot of new bands now, which I think are totally worth talking about and everything. And I don't think they're a new wave. I think they're just the next the next step of what happens in a, in a genre that doesn't really go away is you have new bands and new energy and new kids get into it, but the old bands are still around and there's still old people into the music too. You know, I'm, I'm just glad that the new bands are coming in so that I can always have more people that support my view that uh, in no way is Streetlight Manifesto a ska band. It's just important <laughs> that we respect <laughs> the classics and the foundation. Um, I, we, we've spent a lot of time here discussing the nuances of ska, the history of ska, what it has meant to people and where people have mistaken the identity of it. I guess I would just like to close with the, the big question that mm. is, is sort of the inverse of, of why do you write a full book about Scott, which is why is this important? Why, why should somebody read your book about Scott that hasn't listened to Scott music, that doesn't care about this? What is it that makes Scott culturally relevant? Well, first off, I would say Scott is interesting and the Scott subculture is very interesting. And it has coexisted with like American alternative culture since the eighties, you know? So if you, if you're the kind of person that wants to pick up a book about punk rock or alternative or hip hop or all these things, and you're interested in how these things developed over the last 30, 40 years, ska is right there with it. And it's just been completely ignored. I mean, these bands, it wasn't like a total separate thing. I mean, especially in the eighties, these bands would, you know, Fishbone to play with Public Enemy. You know, these bands weren't that far apart from each other the way it, it's acted like. And yeah, I, don't, Scott, I don't think my dad would think about how much he likes ska, but also my dad introduced me to Oingo Boingo. So like, yeah, you've got the the foundations yeah. and, and the sort of blended genre that dabbles yeah. in everything else. <laughs> Oingo Boingo's uh, early, early music, there's a couple just straight up ska songs, no doubt, you know, and they were, and Danny Elfman was a huge Madness fan. So, I mean, it was on purpose, but, you know, on, on top of that, ska has a very rich history, a very rich anti-racist history, which I think, people should know about and people should listen to what these bands are saying and, and what they've gone through. Uh, ska has pushed a level of multiculturalism and that you don't really see in, in, in most other genres, uh, a way to sort of get out of these boxes, these racial boxes that we put music into. Ska has like continually been about being like, almost like, this music doesn't belong to anyone. I know this music began in Jamaica, but ever since it's been revived in England, it's been, it's, it's belonged to everybody because it was revived as a, a multicultural anti-racist musical genre. So I, I think that 
Scott has done a lot of good and, and it's very compelling and interesting. And, and if all you know about ska is like the goofy bands that, that sang that were on MTV in the nineties, you're really missing out on this really interesting story. In my opinion, where can people pre-order your book in defense of ska? You can buy it. You can pre-order directly from my publisher at clashbooks.com. Uh, the book releases in on May 4th, but you'll get it a little earlier if you get it directly from them. And if you prefer to get it on Amazon or other book retailers, it's uh, it's available everywhere, you know, everywhere that you like to buy books. Aaron, we will see you in the pit. All righty. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. <laughs> you too. And ladies and gentlemen, that was Streetwise from The Pitch, Kansas City. I've been your host, Brock Wilbur. Uh, please check out everything we're doing at thepitchkc.com. Uh, we've got a lot of coverage coming up. Obviously, we'll be covering our big Chiefs win, and in no way will I regret having jinxed this. Chiefs, number one, Super Bowl victory, back-to-back years, we know it. Uh, if uh, if you feel like uh, helping out uh, with the work that we are doing in independent journalism, feel free to toss us a couple of bucks or become a sustaining member all at thepitchkc.com. Uh, otherwise just take care of yourselves be safe uh, this coming weekend Uh, celebrate responsibly please don't throw a kegger I'm begging you Uh, and if you have to at least do it outside or or whatever I you know please take care of yourself don't make uh, our victory a super spreader event we've already been promised no parade we can we can zoom the parade we can zoom our friends we can you know we can do better than than dying over a victory but I I don't know I'm not your mom (laughs) you do you Uh, Anyway, pitch in and we'll make it through. Have a great week. Bye. This was a production of the Pitch Podcast Network. The Pitch is Kansas City's independent source for news and culture. Check out thepitchkc.com to see more podcasts from us, including information for how to subscribe to The Pitch or become a sustaining member. Story ideas or feedback? Write to tips at thepitchkc.com. Pitch in and we'll make it through.